Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 47 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. We, we tried coming up with like a good 47. Oh, uh, like a like a famous athlete that wore 47. Uh, it's I, not, it, it doesn't jump out at me as Tom, one you know, that has. Tom Glavin, as, as, as a Mets fan, I have, I have double-edged heartburn about Tom Glavin, mm. right? Both from when he wasn't a Met and from when he was. <laughs> yeah, it really kind of catches you going both ways. It really does. Uh, but Jack, anyway, here Jack we are. Morris? Jack Morris? Jack Morris. All right, Jack Morris. Mm. Um, one of the greatest pitch games I ever saw, game seven of the 1991 oh, World nice. Series. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, good stuff. Anyway, so here we are. Uh, we're back. We're, we're, I guess, better than ever. We're certainly older than ever. We, I've certainly gained some weight from Thanksgiving. Did yeah. you know, Steve, that uh, in my family, uh, my family and my wife's family live on the same street in San Antonio, but big families, that we don't come together for one meal. So about about noon, we have the Chesney family meal. Oh, and no. Then, then we go you down double the street. Up? Yeah, and then about three hours later, we just do it again. And, of course, I don't want to insult anybody who's been cooking. So, so you, you got to eat it all. I fully partake. That, that, that's well played. Uh, um, so my family and Karen's family are not quite as geographically close. So we got to do the more sort of primary meal and leftovers version. Oh, that, that you know, I like that actually a little bit more. It depends on the leftovers. I suppose it's possible that some listeners didn't tune in to hear this. What what do you think they want to hear about? <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, these days, I, I I can't tell what people actually are interested in. It's the stuff that I find deeply interesting. It's getting zero media coverage. I had I had an exchange with a uh, editorial page, I will not name of what publication, mm-hmm. uh, editor the other day, who was pitching me an idea, and I pitched back something about the the mess that is the Guantanamo military commissions. Okay. To which the response was, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> well, what if I was sure you were going to say the American citizen John Doe detainee. Well, there's also that, but I think everyone's waiting for that hearing, which is scheduled for this Thursday morning, November yeah. 30th, before Judge Chuckin in D.C. But Bobby, here we are, 11 a.m. Central Time, Tuesday, November 28th. Let's tell our our. I guess we can now say 11 listeners, right? <laughs> um, exactly what we have in store for I'm them. I'm sure it's more than 11. It's got to be at least 12. Well, you know, downloaders. Downloaders Down- is listeners. It's yeah. a hard... Actually, you know, listeners might be curious. So what, what are we averaging about? 7,000 downloads per week now? Downloads. Downloads, yeah. Now, I, I love all the people that may not be listening, but at least synced up their uh, their download. So hey, thank listen, you for that. It, that, that's what counts for, for, for ratings purposes. Tell your friends. Let's get this thing to 10,000. Yeah, okay. Um, we, I think we have to be a lot more interesting for that to happen. Yeah, all right. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Hey, Steve, what are we going to talk about today? Oh, We've this, got this, ACLU this, v. Mattis. This, this is interesting, Bobby. Yeah, changing our voice. Isn't that what they do? Oh, well, hello. Yes, use our radio voices. Um, I have a face for radio. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to start by talking about Thursday's big hearing in the John Doe habeas case. Uh, Bobby, there are actually some interesting Supreme Court developments. Big oral argument tomorrow in Carpenter versus United States about the third party doctrine and the Fourth Amendment. Big one. Uh, cert denied yesterday in a drone case that we've uh, talked about before from the D.C. Circuit about whether it's a political question for Yemeni victims of a drone strike to try to sue the U.S. challenging the legality of that strike. Mm-hmm. Also, the travel ban, Dog Nobbit has returned to uh, the Supreme Court when you again. Thought it was out. We're back to the Godfather Part 3. Exactly. All right. Um, so we're going to walk through all of those things. Um, and then because I am slightly exasperated with the unnamed editorial page editor, we're going to spend some time actually bringing folks up to speed on where things stand with the Guantanamo Military Commission mess. Pretty important memorandum issued by our friend Harvey Rishikoff, the convening authority of the military commissions, actually a week ago today about the, judge, uh, judge, uh, the General Baker contempt citation. Also, some uh, 
final uh, uh, sort of resolution, sort of, with Ellen Yaroshevsky, the ethics professor. Um, and Bobby, we had Judge Spath dragoon back into service, um, my friend and yours, right, reservist Navy Commander Brian Miser, who's also my co-counsel in Dalmazi. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, so, interesting. Okay. so, you know, Brian may may kind of have to have some other yeah, stuff so to do. That story definitely, up. you know, popped back into the news. Um, and then beyond that, we've got uh, a little digression <laughs> that, that may seem off topic, but we think it's relevant, at least for what it may portend for the future, this this whole kerfuffle at the, uh, uh, the CFPB and the the question of who's in charge over there. But of course, it, it tells us a little bit about how to think through statutory and Article II questions regarding succession in office. Yeah, I, mean, I think you and I both think that this fight between, um, was it Mick Mulvaney and, yeah. and Leandra English, English about who's actually the acting director of the CFPB is most interesting as a dress rehearsal. Um, for what might be a far larger fight over, for example, efforts by President Trump to sack Jeff Sessions. Yeah, I'll say this about Mulvaney. You know, I'm sure you saw he showed up with donuts, and I thought that was a very smart move. Right, so listen, do- donuts were a good call. I mean, you know, the breakfast le- tacos would have been even stronger, but that's hard to come by in those parts. in D.C. Yeah. Uh, the legend I've heard about this place, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that when our dean Ward Farnsworth showed up for his first faculty meeting as dean, he had it catered by Franklin Barbecue. He absolutely did. So it was you know, a power move. There's a lesson there, ladies and gentlemen. I will say though, in in a slight sort of um, demerit to the power move. There's a staged photo of Mulvaney working in the director's office where it looks like he's working really hard, except that if you zoom in on the photo, the document he's looking at is Leander English's bio. I actually think that might be very much working hard <laughs> in the context. I thought anyway. you were going to tell me it's more of a George Costanza thing. Remember when when George uh, pioneered this sort of like always look like you're working yes. super hard and act yes. stressed yes. even when you're not working on anything at all? That's that's how I've gotten through life. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. So and then our frivolity today, we decided to go off the deep end, you might oh, say. Oh, nice. Um, to, to dive into a, a fun another. Uh, another plumb the depths of, of, of movie categories. Uh, so, so what are we doing? We're going to talk about uh, good and bad submarine-themed movies, and and the puns they'll be they'll be a flying. They will be or, or, or dropping yeah. or dropping. Mm. Yeah, okay, this is going to be bad. This is already, I can already tell we we don't have it today. <laughs> Hopefully, or, our legal analysis will be a little better than our repartee. I don't know. Maybe we're just out of practice. Yeah. All right. So, Bobby, big hearing coming up on Thursday before Judge Tanya Chutkin in ACLU versus Mattis. Remind our eleven listeners. 12 listeners, um, exactly what's going on I think here. you're off by thousands there. Um, <laughs> my, my thousands of listeners, this is, of course, the John Doe American citizen detainee who's been held since September uh, by the 11 US. weeks today since this all started. 11 weeks. Uh, that's, that's a pretty long time now as an enemy combatant in U.S. military custody, presumably somewhere uh, probably in the Kurdistan region. Uh, under we, we know in Iraq. We know in Iraq. Um, this is someone who's uh, identified as a U.S. born, but probably a citizen of an uh, as yet unidentified other country, uh, person who came into uh, Peshmerga or other maybe free Syrian d- democratic forces, um, was turned over to the United States. And we've had these occasional, a while now, but we've had a few glimpses behind the curtain that tell us that the original plan seemed to be to try to get together the basis for an indictment, probably a material support to the Islamic State indictment, and that for a variety of reasons, clearly including his unwillingness to speak to anybody, uh, and probably including the lack of any 
reliable evidence, maybe even an inability to find the person who initially took him into custody, um, other than his presence there, just the inability to prove in court through admissible evidence in the federal rules exactly what this guy was doing over there. So it's one of those classic situations that can arise where the intelligence you know, reveals the following or the government believes the following set of things to be true. He's an Islamic State uh, fighter. Uh, but they certainly can't prove it in court to the point where it doesn't look like they can even get an indictment together. And so they have a dilemma. They don't want to bring him back to the United States and just turn him loose, it seems. Um, they didn't say it's clear they didn't set out to find an American citizen for whom they could try to reestablish the principle of enemy combatant detention, but it's been thrust upon them. And the question has been lingering without any sign whatsoever that the courts view this as any kind of exigent situation, which I think you and I agree. That's just remarkable. Whatever one thinks about the merits, and you and I probably disagree about his detainability on the merits, but the idea that you wouldn't be rolling forward quite quickly at this point, yeah. 11 weeks in, yeah. to, to find out whether he even can have and wants representation is extraordinary. Extraordinary and disheartening. I mean, so, so you know, yes, there was brief... So, so let's say a couple things, right? First, um, the district court moved pretty slowly in responding to the initial briefing and motion to show cause. Right. It, it, in, indeed, I think it's fair to say it was treated as any other matter. Right. Second, even once that happened, the briefing schedule was complete on November 9th. It took a separate motion from the ACLU for a status conference or oral argument to, if you'll forgive me, light a fire under the district court. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think kudos to the ACLU for, for pressing this issue. It really is extraordinary that there's not a greater sense of exigency about, let's remember, this is only to decide the threshold question of whether ACLU is even going to be allowed. And this is my concern, yeah, right? To litigate. So, so my concern is, right, I mean, we, we've talked about this before, but just to remind folks, the real question at this point is not, does the government have the legal authority to hold a U.S. citizen as an enemy combatant under these circumstances? The real question is, is the ACLU entitled to proceed on this unnamed U.S. citizen's behalf, which, as we've discussed before, is a question about Article Three standing and whether the ACLU is allowed to be a, quote, next friend, unquote, of John Doe. Um, the case law can be read, I think, reasonably both ways. I think you and I, Bobby, have agreed before and still agree that there's something problematic about a world where the government could frustrate a citizen's right to habeas corpus by not naming him or providing him with some opportunity to, to contact a lawyer? I think it's indisputable, indisputable, Ooh, not reasonably contestable, that at some point right. a citizen detainee's identity must be revealed. There must be some way to actually make good on the right of habeas corpus. That doesn't mean he gets to go free. No, it, no, means it means he gets, he gets to right. have it reviewed. Right. And so and and I've suggested we've suggested different ways of actually testing whether John Doe wants this habeas petition to be brought and if so whether the ACLU is the right party to do it. My real concern at this point is that whatever the heck the answer is, right? We're not going to get it from the bench at Thursday's hearing. We'll have a hearing on Thursday, and maybe a couple of weeks from now, we'll get an opinion that maybe says, no, the ACLU can't be an ex-friend until something else happens. And then it's going to have to be an appeal. Right. And so what all this, while all this is going on, John Doe is still lingering in detention that may or may not be legal, depending upon how those ultimate merits questions are ultimately resolved. That's right. So, you know, the one thing we had previously, I think we disagree 
about when this right of access attaches, when the courts must be involved, when the identity must be revealed, et cetera. But I think we completely agree that wherever that point is, and, we're I, there. and obviously, yeah, we're, we're there at this point, <laughs> and no one can say, well, which exact day or hour it is. Yeah, yeah but, but 11 weeks, I mean, you right. know, so listen, if there was a scenario where the government could make a compelling argument that 11 weeks in, it still had an absolutely vital national security interest in not disclosing the detainee's name, you know, right. I, I'd be skeptical, but I'd not be averse to at least hearing And by that. the way, they're not actually, as far as I know from no. the documents, there's no such claim no, no, here. No. This is just, the, the government is just taking advantage of standing doctrine to say that because we haven't named this person, the ACLU, can, no one can act as his or her next friend. Here's an interesting question for you, Steve. How much of this do you think reflects a phenomenon that I've seen before, I think you've seen this, I think we all agree this sometimes comes up, where um, the litigating posture... Uh, ends up reflecting to some extent the instincts of litigators. That is, people whose job it is is to take advantage of the rules to win, to get the victory, and isn't necessarily informed by some larger policy sense. Oh, 100%. This is is very good trial lawyers in the civil division at the Justice Department who are making the exact argument the government ought to make. And any administration, Democrat or Republican, would be making in a case like this. The problem I have, right, is that someone— and if it's not going to be a policymaker, it needs to be a court, right. right? Has to push back and say that's all well and good as a matter of Article Three standing doctrine, but you cannot use Article Three standing doctrine to effectively deprive an American citizen of his right to habeas corpus, right. not to release, but to meaningful judicial review of the underlying legal basis for his detention. It would be fascinating to know. It really would be amazing to know what what kind of, if any, senior level dialogue is going on yeah. within DOJ as between the you know the civil division and top leadership. And then the interagency dialogue is they so figure I, out what the disposition is. I don't know what the is. answer is, but I can guarantee you one thing. That dialogue would get a lot more heated the second a court set, you know, starts making, making yeah. noises that this habeas case is going to proceed to the merits. Which is why this is really you know, properly viewed as an interbranch dialogue type of situation where the court has a really important forcing function to play to force the administration to come to terms with this unsought for, I really don't think they were trying to establish yeah. any broad principle here, no. but it's fallen into their laps. They now need to grapple with it. 11 weeks is enough. And, and you know, I really hope that Judge Chutkin on Thursday does more than just sort of sit back and process the doctrinal argument, but actually really pushes the government for whether there's any compelling reason why they still can't name the detainee. And if not, why at the very least they should provide, you know, I propose jurisdictional discovery, you propose a motion to show cause, just right. some way of testing That's whether right. John Doe wants a habeas case brought in his behalf. That's right, folks. We, we've identified two, you choose either one. We've <laughs> identified two ways to resolve this if the court feels there's factual uncertainty that needs to be gotten to the bottom of. I look forward to the time when you and I can get to the merits debate hey, about whether or not the citizen's nice. detainable for in-theater combat activities. But and, and just to put, just to sort of wrap this up in a bow, right, because it's got to be holiday season, um, holiday shopping <laughs> nice, time, nice. right? Um, here's my concern. It's not Cyber Monday, Steve. It's Giving Tuesday. Oh, noted. Um, people should give to NSL Podcast. We don't take money. No, we really don't. All right. <laughs> Explains uh, the production values. We take chocolate. Do we? If people, yeah. if people mail us chocolate, I would eat it. All right. It's, Steve's on that. All right. Anyway, um, so here's what I'm concerned about. Suppose Bobby tomorrow, I mean, you and I have both made the joke before that we, we're officially on the record that if either of us is put into incommunicado military detention, we've authorized the other to serve as each other's next That's friend. right. You can quote this. Okay. But imagine someone who hasn't, right? So, so imagine a more nefarious, right, more contrived policy choice by the government, okay. this, go- this yep. administration or future administration, mm-hmm. to take maximal advantage of the, you know, sort of 
play in the joints of right. these doctrines okay. and to take somebody off the streets, right, for months um, until such time as they're identified and they get a habeas petition and then release them. Right. I am with every day that goes on. I am more and more concerned that this case is setting a precedent for the ability of the government to evade, not avoid, but evade judicial review for longer than they should be able to. Um, that could be used. I'm not saying it has been here, but in a future case for pernicious and nefarious reasons. I'm, I'm less worried for two reasons. One is I, I continue to have faith that the court here will do the right thing once they finally focus on it. Or, and if they won't, that some appellate court will. And We're looking at you, D.C. Circuit. And eventually you get a ruling that says, look, this is how this should unfold. Yep. That's their job. They need to do that. Secondly, I think that the circumstances would be wildly different if this capture had occurred outside of a combat zone. I, so, and, and I don't think there's the slightest doubt that there would have been intense sense of urgency. The court would have moved very quickly. I hope you're right. I, listen, I hope you're right. I fear, right? I fear that yeah. I fear for the case where that's not true. But uh, one last point about this, I think we probably beat this into the ground. Um, I also continue to be surprised by the lack of media attention. Yeah, I agree. Come on, folks. I mean, you know, I, I, I know it's a busy news cycle. I know there's a lot going on. But I mean, 10 years, 15 years ago, when Jose, when John Ashcroft does his big news conference um, from Moscow and Jose Padilla is whisked into military detention as, US, as, a, as an enemy combatant, that was like a headline dominating story for weeks. So one, so let's explore that one. Um, there's the, we're inured to, to a variety of things relating to detention. They're just not interesting to the general public anymore because it all, it all sounds like something we've heard before. So there's that, that a, sort of accommodation to the fact pattern. Uh, secondly, we don't have a name yeah. and a story and it makes it fuzzy. Uh, thirdly, in, in the Padilla case, you, you had some developments, right? The litigation was in place from the outset. There were there were triggering events that created the hook for the, the latest or the refreshed news story. Yeah, although it was six months. I mean, right, so Padilla's taken into custody on June 8th, 2002. Yeah, it's, but it's, there's filings here. There's yeah. filings there. You just need something. And here, I think I think a lot of journalists, uh, cynical journalists, journalists might listen to this and say, well, listen, you, you can only refresh the story with no new facts so many times. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you know, I've, I mean, we have, we've seen less than perhaps in other contexts about some of the interagency stuff that you've been referring to, right? Less sort of effort to probe the depths of, you know, why this has been such a problem. Um, I'm sure, right, media organizations have sources in the Iraqi government that could talk about whether they've been approached about taking John Doe off of their hands. Well, it's interesting. This raises another possibility that distinguishes it, which is that there's a lot of message discipline. So I, I always yeah. read, I read the transcripts of DOD pressers in, in Baghdad for uh, descriptions of what's going on. And I would say about once every third or fourth time, Amidst all the the combat-oriented questioning, someone will ask and say, "What's what's the deal with that American <laughs> citizen?" And the DoD response is always, "Don't ask us. Ask the State Department," right. which is a hell of a curious thing. Well, especially given this State Department. But what's really problematic is the journalists asking those questions never press and say, "That's a baloney answer. He's in your custody. What is your answer?" And this is my and this is my frustration, right? Like, why? Where are the follow-up questions? Where are the follow-up stories? Like, where where is the outrage? And I think the you know part of it is battlefield capture, and he's not named. I think part of it is like, you know, we've lost sight of, I think, I mean, this is sort of Ben Wittes' point, right? That, you know, the the challenges we face today are so fundamentally bigger and deeper. Um, and I guess I just like, I, we should be able to talk and shoot gum at the same time. Like, why can't we also say, and oh, by the way, this non-Trumpian um, national security story yeah. is still a really big deal too. Yeah, the truth is that the oxygen is being consumed by these other flashier issues. So let's. So speaking of them, so, <laughs> so let's turn to them. <laughs> let's throw some fuel on that fire. Um, so so let's turn to the Supreme Court phase of this program. <laughs> um, first, I'll just note one scheduling note for for 
um, folks who might care, which I think includes you and me and maybe a few other people. Dalmazi has been scheduled for oral argument. Oh, go see Steve live in action, a live performance. A of, live performance of the National Security Law Podcast, <laughs> Qua. With me replaced by nine justices. <laughs> well, eight. Oh, you got a recusal? No, but Justice Thomas won't ask me any questions. Every now and then he asks them. Okay, in the last 11 years, he's asked questions in one case. And you'll be the second? Yeah, that would be awesome. I would <laughs> love that. I'd, I'd be like, hey, Justin, what's up, Justice Thomas? I would not say that. All right, anyway. Oh, my God. Um, if you want to be famous, if, if not you are, in a good way. If you are a Washington area uh, National Appeal Law Podcast listener, Tuesday, January 16th, uh, the second argument in the 10 a.m. session is Dalmazi et al. versus United States. So I, I, I would like to see you argue, and I'm tempted, as I said, to come up there and watch if I can, you know, I can give me a ticket or something. Um, but Could should we, if, we, if we're up there, then afterwards, should we do a live episode in case we have some, some people who would enjoy coming to see that? Maybe. Uh, maybe or, that's a question to our listeners. Would you turn out for a live recording of the NSL podcast in Washington? Um, that's a good question. Tweet at us if the answer is yes. Um, and of course, if the answer is no or worse, <laughs> yeah, just keep that to yourself. to yourself. But of course, this also you know, assumes that I will still be walking and talking after. That's what's going to be so fun. You'll be so completely out of it after having done a Supreme Court <laughs> argument. I'll talk you into anything. All right. Far more important Supreme Court news. Um, so a couple developments. Um, first, the Supreme Court yesterday denied cert in the uh, D.C. Circuit Yemeni drone strike case, Bin Ali Jabber, which, Bobby, we've talked about before. Right. Um, in a super quick nutshell, uh, the D.C. Circuit held that it was a political question where victims of a drone strike in Yemen were bringing claims under the Alien Tort Statute and the Torture Victim Protection Act because the basic claim was that the military had engaged in disproportionate uses of force, and that was not something courts could review. Um, I'm not surprised the Supreme Court denied cert yesterday. This is a case I think they wouldn't have wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole, but important just to note that cert has now been denied, so that's all all done for now. Yeah, that you know, in some ways, there, there's a good post on this on Lawfare from from Bob Loeb uh, from July 3rd, 2017, um, talking about how the the Torture Vi- Victims Protection Act was explicitly designed to allow for inquiry into violations of the law of war, among other things, international law overseas. And he made the argument that actually this was this was meant by Congress to enable just this kind of inquiry. Um, but he also points out that you know this very likely would run up against state secrets privilege problems and could could have and should have been dismissed on those other well, grounds. And, and we talked when we when we talked about this decision on the podcast. I mean, I think I recall saying a similar thing, which is that I don't think this case would have gotten to the merits, but I would have preferred right a state secret like dismissal. I, and I can't, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't remember which way I came down then. I, I, that sounds about right to me that it certainly, uh, it's hard for me to imagine how this could possibly go forward, considering that for the TVPA claim, among other things, you'd have to show that the American airstrikes were actually happening under color of Yemeni law. It has to be under color of foreign law. Um, this seems to necessarily invite questions about what the uh, the diplomatic cooperation uh, at a particular in a particular instance, was like. Uh, yeah. It's very easy to see that being a state secrets problem. No, I agree. And the only other thing I would say is, you know, the, the the reason why I think it matters that these are statutory claims is because there was a big fight on the D.C. Circuit a few years ago about whether the political question doctrine could ever apply to statutory claims. Um, and your friend and mine, Judge Kavanaugh, wrote a, a pretty powerful concurrence in the El Shifa case saying he thought the answer was no. Right, that where Congress has provided an express cause of action, 
There may be other obstacles to reaching on the merits, but that you know that strikes that strikes him as the kind of case where the political branches are saying, "Hey, courts, we want you to step in and right. resolve this." Right, and that, and which is why I, I think we both agree that this case probably wasn't going anywhere, but maybe this wasn't the right rationale for it. And yet now you have uh, now you have a cert denial on top of and it. So, of course, and so and that's so, not supposed to count as precedent. No, but, no, no, but I think the question is going to be how this panel precedent is deployed outside of the specific context going forward. That's right. Um, all right, and then uh, really quickly before we get to the larger Supreme Court piece about tomorrow's argument in Carpenter. Um, the travel ban is back, um, right? The government has once again sought stays of the the now two nationwide injunctions against travel ban 3.0. Um, I think the response briefs are due later today, so we might perhaps have a ruling by the Supreme Court as early as tonight or tomorrow. Oh, here boy. we go again. Um, short. Listen, I think I think there are two likely scenarios here, right? The, the bottom line is the merits are going to get back to the Supreme Court and they're going to get back to the court this term. The question is what happens in the interim. And it seems to me there are two likely scenarios, Bobby. Scenario one is we see the exact same thing we saw in June, which is the court splits the baby, right, and keeps the travel ban on hold for those with bona fide connections mm-hmm. to the U.S., but allows it to go into effect for everybody else, right? And then we see the same 6-3 majority that we saw in June yep. and over the summer, yeah. Um, Possible number two is um, they're happy enough with travel ban 3.0 that they allow the whole thing to go into effect pending full merits review in the Supreme Court by the end of this term. Those strike me as the only two real options here. No, that sounds right. I certainly don't have a strong sense of where it would go between them. Uh, I guess we'll find out shortly. Quite shortly. All right. Um, But finally, and perhaps most importantly, um, tomorrow is, I think, one of the most important Fourth Amendment arguments the Supreme Court has heard in decades. Right, Carpenter versus United States. This is the cell site location information case. It's Carpenter Day at long last. This Finally. is for a lot of us the, the the real interesting case for this term. There's a bunch, but this one's really stood out. This as, is the real interesting case for this term. Oh, uh, what was that? Dal Dalhardy. This is the real interesting Dal, case for this term. Dalbardi. We're not friends anymore. <laughs> All right, present company accepted. This is the real interesting case for the term. I think when we ask about larger application... Gill versus Whitford is the answer, by the way. Oh, is that... The partisan gerrymandering case. <laughs> the answer to what? <laughs> uh, the, what is the large? What is the so so my? Yeah, know, no, that's that's obviously the most impactful potential. But one. Carpenter might be right. By the way, do you, do you think the Gill will be a yeah, like June twenty third sort of end of the year? Bombshell? So the only reason why I think maybe not is because it was argued so early, right? And so it's possible that you know. So so listeners who aren't Supreme Court nerds, right? The the Supreme Court hears arguments from October to April, and its pattern is to issue decisions basically from late November through the last sort of sitting in June with a sort of weight of gravity to, you know, toward the back. Yeah, which makes sense, right? Because these are the ones that are being batted back and forth more, the drafting stages. So I agree with that. And- I, there, there's, a, there's a school of thought out there that I actually deeply agree with that actually is really troubled by the Supreme Court sticking to this like drop dead end of June deadline. Yeah. Because especially when you have a complex case argued in April, Right, you're giving the justices much less. The justices are giving themselves yeah. much less time than Gill, for example, which could have as long as basically eight months to flesh out the. And opinions. no doubt we'll have concurrences and dissents and stuff reflecting that full breadth of time. So you know, I, I think I think Gill Gill certainly isn't coming out anytime soon. Um, whether it's like some you know, as late April, I think we could we should we could start looking for it because. Yeah. Unless there are lots of changes, like the, the line, the battle lines are pretty well drawn on partisan gerrymandering. Yeah. 
But anyway, all right, so back all to right, Carpenter. So, yeah, so Carpenter, um, a similar candidate for perhaps being a late uh, drop. Carpenter presents this question of whether the Fourth Amendment uh, comes into play, whether there's a search when the government obtains cell site location information from a cellular service provider. And what Which, is that, Bobby? Well, basically, it, it, you know, your phone's always connecting to some cell tower somewhere, as long as it's on. And that, that enables, especially through triangulation, that enables some approximation of your movements over time. So the company in its business records has, as long as it keeps them, has uh, movement data. It's not pretty, highly pretty, precise in most instances. Yeah, although but, it's pretty good, right? I mean... Well, it, it, as in this case, it can put you in the area and can prove that at least your phone, and therefore probably you, were somewhere near the scene of the crime, and, that and, sort of thing. and especially in areas with lots of sort of saturated cell tower coverage, right? right. The the more cell towers, the more accurate the Absolutely. CSLI is going to so be. So in an urban in an urban area, you're going to be uh, triangulated pretty well. Um, it's it's a question of the continuing viability of the third party doctrine. That old chestnut. That old chestnut. So if you go back to uh, most people say Smith v. Maryland, but there's also of course U.S. v. Miller, both and of I, which are older than I am. Neither of which is older than me. Um, these are 1970s cases, uh, one involving bank records, one involving uh, phone records. In both cases, there's information that's certainly sensitive personal information, your, your bank account transactions, the phone dialing information from your phone number or to your phone number. Um, but it's in the hands of a company. And so the Supreme Court in the 1970s determined that these aren't protected. The, the reasonable expectation of privacy doesn't extend information you've put into the hands of a third party. Right, so some sort of combination of consent and like play in sight, right? Like you voluntarily yeah. agreed to basically surrender possession of this private yeah. information. Well, you, you knew it was happening. So it was knowing you've got in the same way that walking about in public, you are knowingly taking the risk that people will observe you and can answer questions later about what you said. Others can answer questions about what they saw you doing. Right. Uh, the idea here is that the company, these are its business records. They're not your business records. And so there's it's. no petition of privacy if the company then turns around and decides either of its own volition or because Congress has passed a statute allowing the government to ask for them to procure those records. Exactly so. And now these were the, the doctrine was controversial from the start. The the Marshall dissent in uh, in uh, Smith v. Maryland is is sort of sort of today still expresses the same Quite. anxieties that people had then. But now we've got this intervening factor of technological change. And a couple of intervening decisions that suggest the justices are aware of these changes. Yes. So Jones, U.S. v. Jones is the key one to bear in mind here. In Jones, which involved the placement of a GPS tracker physically onto a vehicle, uh, if you count up the different opinions, <laughs> you end up with, uh, I, I believe, Steve, am I right, that there was a majority of justices at least expressing anxiety about whether one would, in the context of digital technology, that could scale up yep. and bearing in mind the greater extent to which there's interesting information that's available yep. through so sort of the combination of the decline of practical anonymity the increasing extent to which we live our lives online that the arrival of all this digital information creates reason to go back and question the premises of the third party doctrine I, I think that's right let me just if you, if you don't mind I'm going to sort of take a second to, to expand Please. that out a bit right so Jones is a 2012 case where um, DC police right placed a tracker on uh, a suspect's car now because they physically trespassed on the property by placing the tracker on the car, that was enough for Justice Scalia, who wrote the nominal majority opinion, to say, listen, we don't have to decide broader questions about the third party doctrine. This was a physical trespass. And so it was a search. Yep. But Justice Alito
Alito writes a four-justice concurrence, and Justice Sotomayor also writes separately to suggest that wholly apart from the physical trespass of physically installing a GPS tracker on the car, there was the broader privacy harm of 27 days of government surveillance qua GPS tracking. That's right. And the ability to do things at a level of efficiency and affordability in, in human resources, they really couldn't easily be done, right. certainly so the, not right. in a case of this magnitude. Well, so the government argued in Jones, right, that they could have just tailed Jones for 27 days to the same end, and that yeah. therefore he couldn't have had an expectation of privacy in digital information that the government could just as easily have obtained the analog way. Yeah. And Alito's response to that is, that's true as sort of an abstract proposition, but the government does not have the capacity to, to trail all of the Antoine Joneses out there. That's right, that's right. And that it wasn't just as easy. And so the physical and a better yeah. example of that, right? So, so trailing a car, right, is actually relatively easy for a law enforcement agency to do once they know what the car is, right? Trailing a cell phone is actually not nearly as easy. No, that's right. So, so the question is, there, here are the possibilities. One possibility is that you get this dramatic undoing of the third-party doctrine writ large. I don't think anyone no. thinks that's going to happen. No, 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 no. It's, it, at least in its traditional applications, I think will go on untouched. The only really interesting question here is how big a bite, if at all, will the justices take out of the third-party doctrine for, um, quote, digital technologies, unquote. And so and so this is where I want to take our, our discussion, right? So we are a podcast about national security law, right? Um, Carpenter's a bank robbery case. Why is why should this be of interest, you know, to folks who are thinking more about like NSA surveillance overseas? Absolutely. So well overseas we'll get but, to but that in just, a second, but just the, in general, you know, right? Why why is it of interest to national security surveillance as opposed to just ordinary law enforcement? Well surveillance? part of what's interesting here is there's an argument that maybe it shouldn't be. There is there has always been an unresolved by the Supreme Court question about whether Foreign intelligence gathering, as distinct from criminal investigation, is an exempt category that, that uh, circumvents the warrant requirement altogether. The warrant requirement, but not the whole Fourth Amendment. It still have to be reasonable. No, it still have to be reasonable, but okay. circumvent the warrant requirement. Yep. Yep. And that is something that has that has basically been mooted by FISA. Yep. It, it's, the court has been able to avoid ever having to answer that definitively. So far, although so far. By, by, by classic FISA, right? Because classic FISA provides for a warrant-like procedure exactly. that arguably satisfies the it, warrant And clause. I would submit to you that after after 30 to 40 years of, of lawyers, to the extent they're exposed to this, basically learning the FISA model, yeah. uh, people have kind of forgotten that up until FISA was created, one of the big live issues yeah, yeah. of the 60s and 70s was, was, was a foreign intelligence surveillance exception. Is there a categorical exception? But there? here's the problem, right? As we've talked about before, classic FISA is kind of old school, right? And now there are a number of FISA authorities, including Section 702 surveillance, that are not conducted pursuant to anything that looks like a warrant. And so the, the insofar as those collections encounter information that's protected by the Fourth Amendment, itself a matter of debate, that may re-raise right, the foreign intelligence surveillance exception. It's definitely out there, and it's one of the great all-time unresolved questions, right? It's, it's reserved in the Keith case, which some listeners may be familiar with from the early 70s. Um, there, there's, there's a sort of an indirect reference to it in the text of Title III. Yep. So it comes up in all these ways. Um, but let's assume for the sake of argument that the answer isn't the question's moot because there's a right. foreign intelligence exception. Assume that it's the contrary, that there is no foreign intelligence exception. Um, this is a question that is relevant for intelligence collectors insofar as the 
uh, individual whose information is at issue has a Fourth Amendment right to begin with. Right. So think about, for example, not 702, but the bulk phone records program, right? The bulk phone records program absolutely. is absolutely predicated on the third party doctrine. Um, because but for the third party doctrine, the bulk collection of phone records from domestic service providers of Americans' phone records, right, would potentially trigger Fourth Amendment issues. And so this is why I think there's an overlap, right, between the fight over CSLI, cell site location information, and surveillance programs, especially ones like the phone records program. Absolutely. So I, it'll be curious to see, A, First of all, obviously, it matters a great deal whether the court actually does decide to take an, carve an exception out of the third-party doctrine for CSLI. And then, two, if it does, right. will it drop a little footnote About saying we are, we're reserving decision, like kind of just following the Keith case and quoting the same language? And so, and so I'll say I wouldn't, so I wouldn't be surprised about the latter, right? So after Jones, the next big Supreme Court digital technology case is Riley versus California. Um, Riley is about something called the search incident to arrest doctrine, which is basically the notion that when you are lawfully arrested by the police, they're allowed to conduct a full yeah. search of your body. Going to pat you down, see what's in your pockets. And Turn so the question out. is whether that includes dumping your cell phone, right? <laughs> let's, let's open up your cell phone and read all the content. Right. So the government had long argued that a cell phone's like a briefcase, and they're allowed to open the briefcase and look through the briefcase to see if there's anything illicit in there. Um, and the Supreme Court in Riley unanimously said no. Right, cell phones may not be dumped, right, as part of a search incident to arrest. But um, the chief justice's unanimous majority opinion drops this amazing footnote that says we're not talking about any other doctrine besides search yeah, incident to arrest. We're not touching that one. So you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a CSLI-specific opinion that has ramifications. Right. But I will say, I, I do think that if the court does anything other than completely reaffirm the third-party doctrine. I think it radically increases the odds that sometime in the next five or 10 years, the Supreme Court's going to eventually have to take a FISA case, right? And mm. say something, because once you start saying there are limits to the third party doctrine, there are exceptions to these longstanding Fourth Amendment carve outs in which FISA operates, at some point, the court may have to grapple with what that means about FISA. I, I would agree that there will be litigation and that it'll bubble up to some extent in the federal courts. Whether the Supreme Court would have to take it on, that's not clear to me. Yeah. But I think that you're right to point to the uh, the still existing under the USA Freedom Act model collection of uh, or accessing of privately private company collected yep. uh, phone metadata. I think you could see some litigation spawning out totally. of that that would then present the oh, foreign intelligence will. question. I think we absolutely will. Yeah. All right. So anyway, uh, it'll be an interesting argument. I think maybe we'll use in, in next week's episode. We'll see if there's anything worth reflecting oh, on. Oh, absolutely. Now that I'm looking forward to that for next week. Um, really quickly on the military commissions. So a couple of big developments since last we we, we spoke. Um, first and perhaps most importantly, um, the sort of Yaroshevsky mess came to a conclusion. So Ellen Yaroshevsky is the Hofstra ethics professor um, whose opinion was informally sought by the defense lawyers who had resigned from the al-Nashiri team. Um, and she was basically ordered, right, to come to Virginia and testify at a hearing before Judge Spath. Um, so remote testimony. So remote testimony. Yeah. Um, she tried to contest the order and argue that the commission lacked jurisdiction over her. Um, her motion to quash the subpoena was actually denied by a federal judge in Manhattan. And so she actually did end up going to Virginia and testifying, um, although I think it actually went you know, once that all happened, it actually, there was no, I think, real drama or fireworks. She testified, she was done, she left, she went home. Right. Now, this can contrast this with Gill's situation. Does does the denial by the federal judge in New York of the motion to quash um, tend to validate Spath's similar action compelling Gill to testify? No, and so this is what's interesting. So while we were away, right, there was also a, uh, a federal tort claim, right, an administrative claim filed by Stephen Gill, 
um, who was in a similar scenario about a year ago, who Spath had ordered to come testify at a hearing, and who was basically arrested by federal marshals. It was it was a really kind of dramatic deal, right? Because it, it sort of smacks of John Merriman's yep. situation yep. a little bit. I think it's a little overstated. But, <laughs> um, but he, he had, I believe, if I recall the procedural posture correctly, he had challenged, it was something along the lines of a motion to quash, although I don't think that's quite what it was. Right. But he, he had raised a motion that just hadn't been acted on. Right. But in, in that void, he just didn't show. And so Spath issued an attachment and Marshall's- A writ of attachment. And they executed the attachment, which means they go to your house and they get you. What, one thing that's troubling about it is the description of what the execution of the attachment looked like. In right. his account, it's like 20 guys with shields At and like batons. At like five in the morning, breaking down drawn. the door. Like Now, now in, in fairness to the Marshall service, I can well imagine that their answer is, there's only one way we ever execute attachments, and that's it. And if that's if that's true, then that raises a policy question about right. whether they need to have a more nuanced approach sometimes. But I can imagine that this wasn't some special thing cooked up to punish. That's probably him. right. But here, so here's the problem: the, the the Gill complaint, which I suspect once the claim is denied, is going to become a lawsuit. Right. And right. what happened with Yaroshevsky and what's happening with these other witnesses um, is all based on what I think is a complete misreading of the relevant statute. So there's no question that the rules for military commissions authorize a military commission judge to issue a writ of attachment. It's literally in black and white in the mm -hmm. rule. The statutes don't. And the relevant provision of the UCMJ is Article 47. Um, Article 10 U.S.C. 847. 10 U.S.C. 847 is explicit that it is illegal to refuse to comply with a duly issued subpoena from a court martial or a military commission. That's true. Okay. But the remedy is civilian, right? I mean, the statute, I, let me pull up the statute because I want to be absolutely clear about this. The remedy for refusing to comply with one of these writs um, is civilian criminal liability. Here's what the statute says. It says, any person not subject to this chapter, so non-service member, right, civilian, um, who has been duly subpoenaed, who has been reimbursed for their expenses, and who still doesn't testify, is guilty of an offense against the United States. And then 847B says, um, you shall be tried on indictment or information in a U.S. district court, not a military commission, right? And that the jurisdictions conferred upon those courts for that purpose, and that a fine or imprisonment should be at that court's discretion. But... If you're agreeing that there is, are you saying that the, the writ of attachment should be issued by the district court, not the military commission? Well, no, you're saying that the prosecution, if there is one for disobedience, should be before district court, not the military commission. But, but, but the I also, attachment's different. But I think there's an argument that 847, therefore, doesn't authorize a writ of attachment, right? That, that in other words, that, that there's no authority to issue a writ of attachment because coercive process to punish the refusal to comply with a subpoena is provided for expressly in a statute that denies that authority to the military. So, so I don't have a strong view on this, but I'm at least open to the possibility that the better reading is, yes, you can be criminally punished for your disobedience, but of course the writ of attachment actually can be enforced in the traditional way, but because here's, a marshal comes and gets so, you. So here's the problem, right? The problem with that is then you're subjecting to military detention, individuals who arguably are not subject to military detention. No, no, detention. U.S. Marshal detention. The Marshal Service comes and grabs you and makes you go to Virginia All right, and so testify. what's the legal authority for that detention? I mean, so the non-detention- writ of attachment. This, so this is what I wrote last year about Gill, right? So I wrote a blog post in October 2016 about why I thought the Gill case was actually really problematic. Back to our old friend, the Non-Detention Act, right? The Non-Detention Act says, no U.S. citizen shall be imprisoned or detained except pursuant to an act of Congress. 
The rules of military commissions, which authorize the writ of attachment, are not an act of Congress. What about the marshal service? Is there not some statutory there's authority no for the U.S. marshal? No, 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 but I'm not talking about inherent authority. I mean, is there not something that talks about the general authority of marshals to enforce duly issued court warrants for, you know, attaching persons or But attaching it doesn't authorize – not that authorizes free state detention authority, right? This is the problem, right? The problem is, is that the usual answer is there's a federal recalcitrant witness statute that, spe that specifically authorizes the detention of recalcitrant witnesses, but again, by civil authorities and civil custody. Is there a difference between detention of a recalcitrant witness, in other words, you know, keep them at the, the Bureau of Prisons for a couple of days until their testimony is secured, as distinct from marshals coming to attach you and deliver you to the place of testimony? I, I'm not sure that the latter actually counts as detention in the sense of the Non-Detention Act, especially if you're delivered straight there and testified, and then you're free. Yeah, I just, I, I guess I, what I come back to, right, is the real concern that you have military authorities acting coercively against civilians, right? Oh, it's, certainly a re, it's certainly a red flag. All right, so that, but at least with the Yaroshevsky, that didn't happen. So I think the that will now get pushed into the Gill proceeding, right, where that will be litigated. And so that'll be post hoc attempts to get damages? Under the Federal Tort Claims Act. I can well imagine that that's we don't get not going to, yeah, yeah. Right, so, so we might not get there. So then the question is, is there any way to finally litigate the question of the military commission's authority to hold, to, to mess with these witnesses. And that's where we come to Harvey Rishikoff's memo from last Tuesday, um, directed to General Baker. So Harvey Rishikoff is the convening authority of the military commissions. It's his job to review all punishments imposed by the commission, including contempt. Mm -hmm. And so this is Harvey's review, right, of uh, Spath's contempt citation. Okay. Um, and what Harvey basically says is a couple of different things that I want to sort of walk through because I think it's worth, you know, playing these out sort of one at a time. Um, huh, okay. <laughs> Let's remind people where we started. So General Baker is the chief civilian defense lawyer. What that means, sorry, the chief defense lawyer in the military commissions. Right. It's not civilian. Um, he's the one who authorized the three lawyers to resign and to leave Team al-Nashiri over what they said was this intractable ethical conflict. Right, which where there's an underlying factual dispute as to whether that's well-founded. They talked to Professor Yaroshevsky. She says, yeah, this seems unethical to proceed. And on this basis, they want to withdraw. And General Baker says, I approve it. And I'm the last word on that. Right. My approval is all you need, so you guys are out. And so what Spath said was that's not – so first Spath said that's not true. Then Spath said – Not true in that you're not the last word. I am the last word. And then, then he wanted Baker to testify, right? Baker refused to testify because he was worried that if he agreed to testify, he'd be submitting himself to the court's jurisdiction, right? And his view is that the military commission did not have jurisdiction over him because he's a U.S. citizen, right? He's not someone who's covered by the, the jurisdictional provisions of the MCA. Um, Spath then holds him in contempt, Right. Um, and so there are two different questions here. There's the underlying merits question of right. who's right about who had the power to let these three guys resign. And then there's the question of whether Spath had the power to hold Baker in contempt. Mm -hmm. All right. So Harvey's memo basically says that he agrees with Spath on both fronts. OK. Right. That he agrees that it was up to Spath and he agrees that Spath had the power to hold him in contempt. Um, but. Right, I have to say that I think his analyses on both of those fronts leave a little bit to be desired. Right, um, so for example, he actually sort of he focuses on the on Spath's. He basically rehashes a lot of Spath's analysis about what the desk book says and about what the rules for military commission says, and misses some of the statutory arguments that folks have made about why the military commissions are different about why the rules for courts martial might be different. Mm -hmm. um, the the Rishikoff memo, I think, leaves a little bit to be desired on that front. But perhaps the most interesting thing about Harvey's memo is paragraphs 27 to 29, um, which are under the heading Path Forward. Ah, right? always interesting. Where Harvey says, all right, so listen, 
that was probably okay. Um, I'm going to suspend the rest of Baker's sentence, though. Like, the point's been made. Yeah. We don't need to – no more no more confinement time for Baker. He suspends, I think, the fine as well, right? Right, right. Um, it says, a matter more imperative than my action in the contempt proceeding remains the underlying security concerns that led to the attempted resignation of counsel in the first place. Right, the, the, the factual dispute we mentioned a moment ago. Right. He says, until the issues of transparency are resolved in an unclassified forum, the case is unlikely to advance even if new counsel are appointed because new counsel might well assert identical attorney-client. Absolutely. Right. Harvey's absolutely right in paragraphs 27. To 29, right? I mean, he's absolutely on the ball about what the problem is. But how are we going to fix it? So he says, the declassification of relevant documents concerning this matter needs to be expedited okay. to ensure the now classified analysis can be shared with the appropriate parties to ensure the integrity of the process. Indeed, he says, the fact that the original defense filing, which gave rise to the attempted resignation of civilian defense counsel contempt proceedings against you, was classified, has made it nearly impossible to those not part of the proceeding to assess the merits of the filing. Compounding this issue is the fact that even the judge's original opinion, in which he determined that there was no good cause to warrant excuse of civilian counsel, is still undergoing security review by classification authorities over a month after the ruling was made. What Harvey's saying is, guys, help a brother out. Declassify all this stuff. So here's what's interesting to me about that. That's all oriented towards how, how can anyone outside the proceedings judge what's going on? Well, that's important, yes. But isn't the most important thing how inside the proceedings at the next level, the uh, actual determination by those who have read these documents, right. who, who are not suffering from the same lack of information, how their determinations get further reviewed. Isn't that the more important question? So I think that's part of it. But so then he says at the end of his conclusion, I recommend to the joint detention group that a clean facility be designated or constructed, which would provide unclassified assurances and confidence that the attorney-client meeting spaces are not subject to monitoring. So this is a, a policy recommendation meant to make sure that whatever happened before, we can at least go forward by, you know, let's break with whatever happened in the past. Um, it seems to me that that's fine. That's just a that's a policy recommendation. Yes, except that he's thereby conceding. No, I don't think so. You think he's admitting that it happened? No, I think he's admitting that we need. I, I think he's admitting that what that whether or not something bad happened, we need to remove the appearance sure. of impropriety. No, no, that's right. So that we can put this issue behind and us, until that no matter how and, it turns and until out. that happens, right? I, I read him as saying we shouldn't move ahead. Uh, maybe. Maybe. There's but no question not, so, this whole thing is gummed up the works Well, except you know, that's not how thoroughly. Spath has reacted. So Spath's reaction now has been to say, well, I can't really dragoon these, these civilians back in the military service, but I can dragoon military officers back in the military service. And so at the end of the last hearing, he ordered back into service um, uh, the commander Miser, right, who is a learned counsel who had previously been on Team Al-Nashiri, mm -hmm. but who's a reservist, whose day job is actually as an appellate lawyer for the Air Force. So does he, you know, I can anticipate your answer to this, does he have any authority to call someone who's a reservist into active? So he doesn't. The Secretary of the Navy does. And so then the question is, is the Secretary of the Navy going to agree with Spath? Oh, so, so Spath hasn't actually done it. He's, well, he's purported he's, to, but I think he needs the Secretary of the Navy to approve. Like, I, I, think say, I, I think there's now an administrative process that has to happen. And it may or may not happen. And then, you know, Commander Miser might challenge said process. So all this is to say that we still haven't solved either of the underlying merits questions. One, who's right about who gets to let the lawyers go? Two, does Spath have the power to hold these guys in contempt? Right. Um, the latter of those questions, in theory, is still pending before Judge Lamberth in Baker's habeas petition. <laughs> now, the government may argue that Baker's habeas petition has it's been moved, mooted right. by Rishikoff's suspension of the That's sentence. Right. That's right. So then, the, I mean, you know, so we're sort of stuck Although in... I would, I would think he would argue quite 
plausibly that it's not moot. It's it. He nonetheless was found in contempt, and that determination was sustained. That's on his record. And it's capable, re- and it's capable of repetition. I don't think you need that. Yeah. I think he's got he's got a black mark on his record. So now. hopefully now Judge Lamberth goes ahead and reaches the merits. Right. Well, and again, I, I think the ultimate thing is this process has got to get to the point where we have a final answer on what actually happened and whether that justifies the recusal. Agreed, but I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. All right. Um, things that, things have moved a little more quickly with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, especially in contrast to ACLU v. Mattis, which yeah. isn't moving quickly at all. So why don't we just sort of so really quickly, right? The fight over the, CF, the CFPB. So Richard Cordray was the director of the CFPB. Um, was it last week? God, it's hard to believe it was just last week or, or shortly before he announced that he was re- resigning um, and that he was appointing someone. Uh, someone else in the agency, Leandra English, to be his deputy director. So before he relinquishes his authority, he appoints a deputy and then steps aside, creating the vacancy, right. which, which in his view, well, so, right. his deputy then steps into. So there are, t- there are two competing statutes, right? There's the Dodd-Frank Act, which creates the CFPB and creates the procedure by which its officers are appointed, etc. The Dodd-Frank Act says that upon, not a vacancy, right? This is the problem. The Dodd-Frank Act says upon, um, I think it's, unavailability, and there's some other vague, ambiguous word, mm-hmm. of the director, the deputy director shall become acting director. That's what Dodd-Frank says, okay. with no reference to any other procedure for filling a, the vacancy on a temporary basis. But the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, which we've talked about before, um, gives the president a lot more authority and a lot n- more choices over who can be the acting director of that kind of agency. And President Trump taking advantage of that authority, named Mick Mulvaney, head of the Office of Management and Budget, to also serve as on an acting basis as the director of the CFPB. So there are two people both claiming to be the acting director of CFPB, um, Leandra English based on the text of the Dodd-Frank Act, and Mick Mulvaney based on the text of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. And English has put it into court already by filing what was a declaratory judgment action seeking to validate her claim to the office? Yeah, although as our as our good friend Sam Bray has pointed out in the Vol Conspiracy... Um, There's it, a vehicle for this. If ever there was a time for the classical common law action of a quo warranto... This is one, right? And he's right. I mean, yeah. this is like the, this is the exact case Quo Warranto is designed for. Which, right? Which, Who, which is the right? Which is the right person in the right office? Exactly. Um, you know, whatever the vehicle, it seems quite clear that Judge Kelly um, indeed is moving with alacrity and expedition, um, and intends to resolve this pretty quickly. All right, which so everyone's all in a kerfuffle because it's all Trumpy and it's, so it's, it's, but it's, it's but you and I Trumpy. think you and I think that it. Yeah, I actually think it's unfair to kind of treat it as a Trumpy issue because this this is the sort of dispute that can come up when you have quasi-independent agencies and an executive branch that feels that in a unitary manner, it should be able to pick the directors. So the Trumpy part is not the dispute. The Trumpy part is the tweets attacking the CFPB for doing nothing. <laughs> that is totally the Trumpy part. Right. The Trumpy part, the Trumpy part is completely mischaracterizing why. Republicans who support the president don't like Cordray and the CFPB. It's not because CFPB has done nothing. It's because CFPB has been aggressive in going after corporations. Now, well, you, that's a characterization that that many people share. But it's also the view, I'm sure, of those people. They would say they've gone after it beyond in ways that are bad for consumers, well, no, so, in so, ways so, that are problematic. So, listen, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't yeah. say whether it was good or bad. Yeah. Right? They've been aggressive. I think but aggressive. I, I, I think that the tweets and all that is kind of besides the point. What really matters here right. is it's a dress rehearsal, as you said earlier, yes. for a potential 
essentially security-related matter, which is the possible next career move for the attorney general. Right. So, and what so, might happen then? So, right. So, so just to, to, to not to not put too fine a point about it, the the larger question of the interaction between the general provisions of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act and the far more specific provisions of a number of agencies' own succession statutes. Um, is one that could be a really big deal for DOJ because DOJ has its own succession statute. Right. Um, OLC has opined that the Vacancies Reform Act coexists with the DOJ succession statute, but that's never been tested in court. Right. And that's amazing to me, actually, that this – I do think – would you agree that as a general abstract rule, if someone – if a student comes to you and says, all right, so you have a generally applicable statute, and then you have a lex specialis, you have a more specifically applicable regime, they're both good law, um, and you need to reconcile them, the more specific law controls. So the more specific law controls and or the later enacted law controls, which in the CFPB case seems to tilt the scale toward Dodd-Frank – Right, which is post the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. DOJ is harder because the DOJ statute is more specific, but the Vacancies Reform Act is later. Right, so so yeah. it cuts both ways. But isn't so? There must be some indication in the Vacancies Reform Act uh, legislative history as to whether not that that controls. But yeah. uh, we can at least get a sense of did anyone even think that what they were doing was something other than gap filling for the agencies and departments that don't have succession statutes? Yes. Uh, wow. There's ambiguous legislative history about the 98 statute. And um, let me just take a chance to plug the work of Ann O'Connell at Berkeley, who okay. is um, – it, it is unfair to say Ann is the leading expert in the universe um, <laughs> on federal vacancy reform. But is that just because we don't know what's out there in the universe? No, it's because she's so much more, right? Like, <laughs> the like, it, it the sounds, multiverse? It sounds so – no, it's just, it sounds so pigeonholed that, like, you know, if, if it's about the Vacancies Reform Act, Anne's the person. Oh, I thought you were going all cosmic. I wasn't. Uh, well, okay. perhaps both. Anyway, but so, so all this is to say, like, I, I think the Vacancies Reform Act is messy. And it's messy because there's no bright line, clear statement about how it interacts with more specific succession statutes, especially later enacted. More so, so, just to give one example, I mean, if you look at the succession statutes for, say, the military service secretaries, which I'm sure no one's ever looked at, but I have because of Dalmazi, right? Because those are arguably civil offices, mm -hmm. right? Um, the succession statutes for the service secretaries are like Dodd-Frank in one respect. They provide for automatic succession, right, but to specific positions. So right. in the event of a vacancy in the Secretary of the Navy, the next person up is blank, yeah. right? But then they say, until such time as the president makes an appointment under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. But Dodd-Frank doesn't do that for right. CFPB. So, so, the, all the, so I, you know, I am, I am sort of, I, I've managed to piss everybody off this week because I'm one of those people who thinks that, so there are a lot of people out there who think that this is an open and shut case although they completely disagree about in which direction. And I'm one of those who actually thinks, no, this is actually a hard, messy case that could come out either way. Now that, of course, not surprisingly, that view sounds attractive to me. <laughs> I think it'll be interesting, depending on what ruling they get out yeah. of uh, this initial foray with the trial court, um, it could create some interesting incentives for the executive branch if they get a good ruling to try to make this go away as quickly as possible well, so, so they can keep that good ruling in place. So there's a larger point here, which I think shouldn't get lost in all of this, which is this is a mess the executive branch could avoid. Right, because no one doubts that the president has the power to fill yeah. that office on a permanent position by nominating a replacement and having the Senate confirm him. That's going to take a while, right? In the best case scenario, that's going to take a little while. But this is the question, right? Like, I mean, given that the Republicans control the Senate, you know, unless the president wants to fill, surely Mick Mulvaney is not is not his full time nominee for right. successor because then he'd have to give up OMB, right? And so, unless the person the president wants to run CFPB is someone who can't be confirmed by the Senate, 
why not just nominate him already and get that ball rolling no matter what happens with this court fight? Yeah, you, it's easy to imagine that they will begin that process, but I imagine they'll think that as, as nice as it would be to get a very quick confirmation to make this whole thing go away, it's going to take a while. But so all the more reason to start now. Yeah, no, no question that's, about that. That's, I mean, unless, and so the, I say this, right, unless you're a conspiracy theorist and think that the person they really want isn't confirmable. And so they're waiting to resolve this, and then once they resolve it, because under the Vacancies Reform Act, you can only serve for 210 days, right? So Mick Mulvaney can only be head of CFPB for about seven months. Um, maybe the long-term person is the next person who they're going to name to be the acting director once the legal issue is settled. Mm, I think that gives them too much credit for yeah, forward thinking. That's probably right. Um, I think we're sinking to the depth. Oh, so it must be time for frivolity issue. Would you say? Let's do it. So, so, so without without, I guess we're, we're we'll see what happens with the CFPB mess. Maybe by this time next week we'll have a decision from Judge Kelly to review. Yeah, that'd be very interesting to parse. Um, and, and to to parse and maybe to torpedo. <laughs> Which reminds me, what kind of movies are we going to talk about here? So in our, 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 our walkout frivolity today is is submarine movies, right? Um, Bobby initially thought that there weren't <laughs> enough submarine movies to actually fill a whole category. If, if the categories were, you know, three best and three worst, I wasn't. No, no, three best and one worst. A three, oh, that's good because that's all I got. That's fine. All right, so so, so uh, why don't you start? You want to do what best or worst first? Let's do best first. Okay. Okay. So I think I think there you may choose to go in a different I, direction, I but I think a lot of people would say, well, of course, the, the, you can go the artsy route or the popular route, and the popular route is say the best submarine movie, of course, is The Hunt for Red yeah, October. That's the easy answer. That, that and that's why I say it's the popular route. Um, and if you want to go the artsy route, you say, oh, it's Das Boot. I agree with that too. But I was I'm, I want to throw in a third possibility, which is The Enemy Below. Okay, now I've never seen that. Robert Mitchum, Kurt Juergens. Classic um, film. So not only is The Enemy Below a classic submarine movie, but it's a classic submarine movie that is uh, a whole sort of discussion sequence in another pretty good submarine movie. Right, so in Crimson Tide, you know, the Denzel Washington oh, yeah, Gene Hackman yeah, sub that movie. Was, that, I thought about that. There's a whole discussion on the on the bus on the way to the submarine between James Gandolfini and a couple of the other actors, right? Um, where they're ranking submarine movies. Oh, it's like very right. meta. Yeah, it is very meta. Um, and, and, and they really, and they really, they, they, they feel good about the enemy below and I agree with them. Where do they say number one is? They didn't, it, it wasn't, uh, it didn't like get... Bobby Chesney, they didn't do it numerically. Ah, uh, got it, got it. Okay. So, so here's, yeah, the which... only, The Hunt for October is a fantastic movie. Here's my only problem with The Hunt for October. The book is so much better. True, often true about films, but very true. The book but it, is but a in this case, it, in this case, it hurts, right? It, it, it hurts me a little bit because, like, the vision. In, I, I'm. I. I. This is a spoiler alert. So if, you, <laughs> if, if you you've been waiting this, 32 yeah. years to read the book, right? So in the movie, the 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 culmination, the culminating moment is when the Red October and the Dallas together maneuver so that the Kanavalov's torpedo ends up coming back on the Kanavalov itself. You've you asked, you've killed us. Right. You you arrogant ass. You arrogant ass. Right. You've killed um, us. <laughs> and and in the book, right, the actual culmination is the Red October rams the Kanavalov. That's what you see. You find that more appealing I, for various reasons. The, the setup is more plausible yeah, and more yeah. believable and more and more intricate. Con Sedar, Crazy Ivan. <laughs> oh, it's so fun. It's it's very quotable. Uh, okay, now was that your number one? Uh, so no, my number one is Das Boot. Okay. My number two is Enemy Below. Okay. And my number three is Hunt for October, with an honorable mention to Crimson Tide, which I think is, yeah. you know, well acted. Yeah, do, what about the, so at the time with Crimson Tide, a lot of people said, okay, so it's a knockoff of yeah. Hunt for October. Of course it is. Yeah. It's, but but it's mean a good it's one. Um, okay, and, wait. Before and and another honorable mention yeah. to U571. All right. Is that? That's um, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Oh, is it really? Yeah. How do I not know that one? Seriously. Um, I feel bad. Okay, I have. I had on my list, uh, these are sort of uh, 
honorable mentions uh-huh. because they're not directly submarine movies, but I'll, I'll be curious what you think. Yeah. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Because the culminating nebula battle takes place. It's very submarine you know, they drop Z minus his, his, thousand his, meters. His pattern indicates two-dimensional thinking. Don't you feel? I mean, of course, <laughs> uh, the, in the Star Trek sci-fi universe, it's all very naval in, in style Okay, but you lose 10 points for trying to work Star Trek 2 into every single one of our movies. I think lists. I gained 10 points for that. <laughs> I thought you were going for Star Trek 4, right, where they end up in the water, right, where the, <laughs> where the, Klingon, where the Klingon bird of prey ends up right, in the right. water, like literally in San Francisco Bay, and they, and they let the whales out. I, who let the whales out? That... Um, With my, a transparent aluminum. My favorite part of that movie does. is when, when Spock's trying to learn to cuss. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Also, um, when Scotty sits down and realizes he can't just... Hello, computer. Yeah, computer. And then, and then, like, you, have to use the, then it's like, you have to use the mouse. And it's like, hello, computer. <laughs> he cracks his knuckles. And then he proceeds, despite having no familiarity at all with keyboards, proceeds to type, uh, I think, pecking with his... Yep. Uh, just his index fingers. Pecking. Like, you know, ultra fast. Yeah. Well, but listen, I'm a fast hunter and pecker myself. Okay, so what about... You leave that out there. What about... <laughs> let that be out there in Radioland. Um, worst submarine films. So I'm going to go on... There are, there are stupider submarine films, but the worst... My, my nomination for worst is K-19, The Widowmaker. Mm. Because Harrison Ford should have known better than to do a whole movie where, he ha- where we have to listen to his terrible freaking Russian accent yeah, yeah, the whole that, time. Yeah, that's brutal. I, th- I was sure you were going to go Steven Seagal in Under Siege. So Under Siege, but Under Siege is not a sub movie. Well, there's, there's some sub stuff in there, in there. There, yes, the the there's a submarine that comes along at the end, purportedly to rescue Tommy Jones and the other hijackers. Isn't that enough? Tommy Between Lee Jones. that and, and Steven Seagal, that just ruins it all. Okay, I have an alternative. But I actually, like think, I actually think Under Siege is an entertaining movie. All right, all right. What about this? What, what about Under Siege Two: Dark Territory? I didn't even know there was such a thing. <laughs> what about this? League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, okay. You got the Nautilus in yeah. there. Although I can't decide, do I love that movie or hate it? It's one of those. It's If it came on, it's like, I might, it's like I might you watch it. You go all the way to the edge of the curve and you're back on the other it, side. It's so bad that it's kind of fun to watch. <laughs> so so really quick shout out to my my best friend, Andrew Weller. Um, so the, the day that I think we both decided that we were each other's best friends and that we were like, you know, destined to be friends for life was the day where he quoted Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, <laughs> and I correctly placed the quote. Oh my God! This this shows an outer limit to our friendship because I didn't even know there was an under siege too. Well, you know, we we always knew there were limits to our friendship, <laughs> as this show often illustrates. Seriously. All right. Well, on that um, uplifting, downlifting, sinking note, let's drop a death charge on that and end this. All right. So thanks everybody for listening. Hopefully there will be no developments warranting an emergency episode this week. Be sure to uh, follow the podcast at NSL Podcast. Follow Steve on Twitter at Steve underscore Vladek. Under, follow me on Twitter at Bobby Chesney. Um, and if you would, let other people know about the podcast. We really would love to have some more listeners. And let us or know what you think. subscribers. Subscribers. Even if you're not going to listen. Although if you're not going to listen, you're not hearing this. True. Well, we don't really, it's, it's the other people we don't need to listen to. We just <laughs> need to subscribe. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe out there. Adios.